This podcast is brought to you by a-eon.biz, stickerrobot.com, theminotaurproject.co.uk and pvpubs.com. Hello, my name's Adam Spring and this is a Remotely Interested podcast, hosted at remotely-interested.com. So we've made it to number 10, and for number 10 I thought I would do something a little bit interesting, because there's an old saying that goes, never meet your heroes because you might be disappointed. Now, if we look at someone like Dave Needle, for instance, who sadly made it onto this podcast for the wrong reasons a little while ago when he passed away, uh, I found some footage and that's now out there, he developed the Amiga computer along with a load of other people, the Atari Lynx, and the 3DO gaming console with RJ Michael thrown in the mix there as well. And if anybody could say that, oh, that's a potential hero, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But Dave was a very good friend, or I classed him as a very good friend towards the end of his life, and he certainly, there was elements of mentor to him, but he wasn't necessarily a hero to me. And when someone said that phrase to me, you know, um, never meet your heroes because you might be disappointed, there was only one name that came to mind to me. And that name was Dr. Gregory C. Walsh, for uh, who works for a company called Leica Geosystems. Now, a lot of work that I've done since 2006 has been based around 3D documentation products. Uh, my first product was the HDS 3000, which was a 3D laser scanner, and Greg was a system architect on that. Now, when I met Greg, he's hands down one of the most, if not the brightest person that I know, but also he's one of the nicest as well. So for somebody who has had a, an indirect, you know, and I call him a friend now, so direct influence on my career as well, it's just, yeah, if anybody that I could say, you know what, I'm happy to fanboy out over, it's certainly Greg. Anyway, in this interview, we go over his, uh, his pathway to laser scanning and his pathway to where he is now, where he's basically a, a senior member of Leica Geosystems for R&D on their software side. And if you want to know more about laser scanning in general, follow a link that's below this on the SoundCloud. And uh, yeah, visually it'll explain it some more, and I explain it some more with a narrative as well. Now, we don't just go through his, his career, we also talk about things like his favorite application and what you know what drives him as well so until later on i will leave you with greg and um yeah i hope you enjoy it as much as i enjoyed doing it my job title is director of r&d of tls which means terrestrial laser scanning software so currently i'm responsible for all of the software products associated with the terrestrial laser scanning line which is inclusive of cyclone Cloudworks, TrueView, TrueView Global, and uh, and so on. Obviously, there's a bit more to that as well, backing up a little bit. You know, obviously, number one podcast for Hexagon Radio last year, and we talked a little bit about your background in laser scanning. Absolutely. But I guess without repeating too much about that, but I guess we will in one respect, is how, how did you get into designing 3D cameras and, you know, laser-based systems how 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 did you get there how did i get there you know unfortunately i my my story is not necessarily one that you can easily emulate because as most of my friends in the academic community have pointed out my interests are described as stochastic so there's a kind of random quality in fact my entire major was selected while i was standing in line at college in admissions when i was a freshman i got up to the front of the line and i couldn't really decide what to major in and i basically asked them what's the most difficult thing to get into my grades from high school were pretty good not great but pretty good and i barely scraped into electrical engineering and i figured well let's give it a try because I figured if, say, I was a complete wash-up there, I could probably transfer out of the most difficult into something else. I wasn't really 
clear on how universities worked at the time. I was, what, 17, 18 years old. So that gives you a sense of the somewhat random nature of my selections. The reason that I work in laser scanning is because Syra was located within 20 kilometers of my wife's parents' house. That's incredible. Yeah, so uh, I was working as a professor and I complained to one of my friends, my wife was done with living in Maryland. Okay. It had been five years and it was time for us to go back home, which for her was the Bay Area. And uh, my friend, Mark Austin, had a friend named Christy Walt working for a little startup called Syra Technologies. He warned me that it was pretty financially unstable. It seemed like it was always going out of business. But, you know, the important thing was, as I checked its address, and I looked on a map, and I noticed that it was relatively close to my wife's parents' house. So I said, hmm, I'll give them a ring. So in terms of the Syra Technologies thing, what was it like in those early days of working in that startup? Because obviously, you know, as you and I are talking at the moment, Hexagon, multi-billion dollar global company acquired, yes. you know, Syra in 2001. What was it like, you know? Well, of course, I came in after a couple of years. So the company already had a product. It had the 2400, and it was working on the 2500. And, you know, a small company like that, of course, is strongly shaped by the principles that are driving the company. That would be Ben Kassira and Jerry Dimsdale on the technology side. Those two people hired me, and they really shaped all of the directions and work inside of the company, and they created the culture that existed there. Jerry was very exacting in, in, in wanting to have accurate and correct data. I think this is partly the resonance that appealed to Leica when they examined us for possible acquisition, because he was such a so particular about all of the details and the calibration and all of those procedures. They, I think they felt there was a kindred soul there and was a product that they could actually understand and feel proud about selling. And, and Ben was just, he was just so knowledgeable about all of the problems customers have. So as a pair, they were a correct combination in order to create this. And it wasn't a very big company, so we all essentially worked for them. So there's an element of serendipity then in terms of the personalities in place. Yeah, I generally find that in order to have a successful company, you need someone who understands the problems and another person who really understands technology well enough to provide a solution. And what was your contributions on the 2400, 2500 then? I didn't work on the 2400. I worked on the 2500. I came as a research engineer, so I was just basically working for Jerry. And I principally worked on all of the motor controls. So they had two motors to deflect the laser beam, and they had a lot of troubles tuning them. Actually, the principal trouble with tuning them was that uh, they had a long mirror, a long axis mirror, for deflecting the beam along the azimuth direction, and, and they were trying to wrap a PID control around it. And, you know, I'm a control theorist, and uh, I saw immediately the problem was that the mirror was bending. And so, there, and the motors, of course, were very powerful because people wanted to be able to move the mirrors quickly. But the feedback loop itself would cause the motors to sing, basically oscillate unstably because of the flexible inertia attached to it. And this is a kind of well-known problem in control. So I went ahead and rewrote all of the algorithms to taking account the physical characteristics. Obviously, PID control, which is a very common way to approach doing any kind of servo mechanisms, won't really help you there. When you tried to do things like improve the damping so you settled very quickly, it tended to exacerbate the, the ringing. So they would have to turn it way down and it would take a very long time to move the motors around because of the flexible structures inside. It's not so uncommon to many kinds of control problems. And then I went ahead and also there was a very strong offset which was 
they were trying to use uh, integrator to estimate and compensate when they do fine positioning. So, but in fact, you know, it's kind of something you can identify in advance. So when that 2500 started up, it would turn the motor very slowly and identify the strong detent of the motor and just cancel it as a feed-forward mechanism. So I improved, uh, I would say, radically the performance of the motors. We also had all kinds of wind-up problems and bearing problems in those motors, which I addressed in kind of interesting ways. For example, the azimuth motor would move so slowly when it was scanning at a distance that the balls in the races would tend to ride up and wedge, which was kind of a strange phenomenon. We tried a variety of different uh, ball bearings, materials and races and so on, but uh, you could always clear it if you flicked it with your finger because the balls would fall back into the races and it would run. So I just wrote in, for example, one of my early contributions, I just wrote in I detecting the wedging condition and it would send a sharp pulse through the motor and reset all of the bearings. Just a big current pulse. So this is an example of the kind of things I worked on when I got there. They just had a lot of problems. I mean, at, at early days, for example, the 2500, they would have to try to match the power packs with the scanner so the motor performance was okay. So this is very far away from say, what we might call robust control. So I, I fixed all of those issues for the 2500. So 2003, Jerry leaves. You'd sort of slip into the role that he was in. How right. far along was the HDS 3000, the machine that I obviously learn on, <laughs> in development by the time, you know, that transition of acquisition by Leica, transition from Jerry, how far along the way was it when you took the reins of that? That's a, that's a good question. The the 3000 uh, internally initially was called the 2600. You know, the 2500 initially called it the 2600. But people fought over it so much about what the design would be, they decided to ditch that and call it the 2700. <laughs> I don't know if that really helps, but there you go. And actually, therein lies the transition between a sort of more market-oriented company and one that is very vision technology-oriented. That product represented a transition. It was actually the first product where we rolled into the black. And the design for that unit uh, didn't really conform to the technological vision because it was a pretty asymmetric mechanical construction. Interesting. But, uh, but in talking to all of the salespeople, it was very clear now that we had customers because of the 2500 that A, scanning all the way around was important, but also being able to scan above the scanner was very important. And the competing designs at the time uh, scanned in essentially like a donut, like a Regal scanner. Oh, interesting, okay. But it was yeah. spatially symmetric. So, I mean, at some point, a company has to start uh, listening to the market and what problems they have to solve. So the time of Jerry's departure, uh, it was only barely formed in some sense. And then we went through a very intensive development process. Well. We were maybe halfway through the development, and then we released that one, I think, in 2004. Yep, yep, you did, yeah, and I think, you know, as a user, and that's how I got into all of this, it was definitely a game changer, I think, personally. The yeah. principal design there uh, was to have this heavy, uh, sorry, heavy, but basically a solid aluminum frame. Uh, that entire frame was machined out of 6061 aluminum, which is an aircraft aluminum out of a solid block and it was extremely dimensionally stable. I just I just remember that 
the conceptual design was actually the idea of building it this way was actually one of the mechanical engineers who worked for me. I was a director of engineering at the time, and, uh, and so many people credit me for coming up with that physical configuration, but in, in fact it was someone who worked for me. Uh, the only credit I really deserve is recognizing that it actually met what people wanted and uh, standing up for it wow. as a design concept. So mostly uh, I, uh, I, I made sure that this occurred and then I directed this. I was system architect for this, but I took a great deal of input from all of the members of the team and so I felt it was a, it was a very strong product and it was the first product that uh, turned us around as a, as a unit inside of Leica. And what would you say is the biggest difference between developing out hardware and developing out software? Because obviously you've had experience in both now. Well, the principal difference, I mean, there's actually, a, there are a lot of differences between the two. So, you know, one of the ones I pick out is that there is a uh, homogeneity, homogeneity to software development teams because they are generally all computer scientists or programmers and their work styles are very similar because they're basically writing code or integrating modules together. And so the work practices that you can follow and sort of the work culture is remarkably uniform and this leads to several consequences. But on the hardware side, you generally have a mix of different engineering disciplines. You'll have people who design optics, people who do mechanics, circuit card layout, and then you'll have also firmware engineers and software engineers. And, and actually, because of the timescales involved, so if you're going to do an optic and you need it to be coated, say, put some layers of magnesium fluoride on it and so on, all of this takes a lot of time to occur because you have to go to a coating house to get the lens, you have to go to a coding house and so on. So the, the times of, types of workflows that people develop and their working habits are very different when you have to involve materials than if you can just do everything with software and code. As a consequence, one of the big challenges of hardware projects is keeping everyone sort of working together. Right? Interesting. Okay. It's a, it's a big difference uh, and, and that means the way you manage a hardware product project is very different than managing a software project. And so, and, but you know, actually software has some tremendous advantages. If we wanted to make a slight modification to the scanner, we'd have to, say, cut a new mold, say, uh, for the side covers and add a part and so on. And making those kinds of modifications is, uh, is relatively simple inside of software and low cost, right? Because mm -hmm. you're just changing the code around. So that means that things that make sense in hardware uh, in terms of planning and material flows and so on are not applicable or even dangerous to apply in software because in software you want to be light on your feet, quick, and agile, of course, is the term of art these days, and that does make sense to me. Yeah. So the Leica C10, fine machine, long laster for Leica. What's your fondest memory of working on that one? Fondest memory of working on the Leica C10? Uh, there are many moments in any kind of development, uh, but uh, I think when we first got it calibrated. Uh, the first time we got a working calibration on that machine. Uh, I remember it was quite late at night. We had just run through an yet another attempt to calibrate it on the tracker ball system we had set up for the scan stations. And we realized we had a sign error in the offset calculation. And then everything fell into place. You know, it was rather late at night. And I remember I was working with one of the engineers. And we both said to ourselves, wow, this is a pretty complicated thing, but I'm glad it works now. <laughs> <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, that, 
that was a that was a great instrument in the sense that uh, we got to put in the encoders and really bring the speed up. I actually conceived of that unit uh, in 2005. Wow. Okay. Uh, and then what happened internally was that it was just too big a project to build with the size of the business that we had. Yeah. Right. So what we did is we broke it into pieces. We first put in the tilt compensator into the scan station one to make the scan station one, and then we then we we uh, redesigned all the optics and the laser to make the scan station two. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So and then and and then uh, and then finally our business had grown large enough to make the capital investment risk seem appropriate to build the C10. Yeah, and I think that's an important point as well, is when you're building specialist products, it's not like consumer products where, you know, you have a, you know who your user base are in a way, whereas consumer products, you've got more people to work with, so it's a safer bet in one respect. Uh, the, you know, all of the customers and their inputs and comments were very, very helpful. They, we would have these uh, user conferences and there'd be a user input session. And in fact, we did pay a great deal of attention to the feedback we got because our users in particular were quite creative about how they would use the machine and the ways they would find to, say, earn a living, basically. And it was a, it's a fine thing to make hardware and software mainly because you're enabling people to solve problems and really just earn a living in a way of life, right? That's an that's a existential yeah. pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And what's the application that sticks out to you the most? Because I find it very interesting talking to you having, you know, created these machines that have been used in various different scenarios over the years. What's the one that sticks out to you most, if, if you can answer that question? That is a very difficult question to answer. Uh, I mean, there's two sort of areas that I always find personally very interesting are the cultural heritage applications, because I am a big fan of history and uh, of all of those aspects. I'm I'm not a historian, but I do read a great deal, and I find a lot of comfort and perspective in understanding events even in the distant past, because there have been many times of social and technological upheaval in humans' history, and we, we can read about those times and understand how things changed. I, I love the perspective that history all And then being able to see the monuments, the places, the cities, the walls, is very satisfying. And, being able to provide instruments people use to preserve those things has, is, is also a, a great thing. It's important to know where we come from. The other thing that I, I really have enjoyed are the uh, police customers. Interesting, okay. Um, they have a pretty hard job. And uh, to be able to provide them facts. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we provide measurements, right? And it's a completely unexpected application for me. I never imagined that police officers would want to use it. But in some sense, it brings me some comfort to know that, you know, the important thing is for them to have data, for them to understand and reconstruct events that occurred in the past or to be able to, you know, know about how things are physically located next to each other, what people could see, and uh, do estimates of, say, tire skids and crash and crumple zones, all of those kinds of things, um, you know. And so in that particular segment, uh, does hold some satisfaction for me as well. And what would you describe as being the biggest change that you've noticed since you first started <laughs> to where we are now, which I know is a big difference because of where we are now, but, you know. The amount of time people spend in the field to collect data has, I mean, 
of course, the amount of time people spend in the field hasn't changed, but the amount of time, the amount of data has vastly increased. So I guess the productivity has just radically transformed from the days of the 2400, where you had a limited window, and you had to rotate literally on the tripod to get a 360 manually and have targets and so on. So in you know what I've what I've been amazed and of course been a part of a strong part of is and I look back is how far we have come in terms of how much easier it is to use the machines, how much easier it is to capture reality with this equipment, how much faster it is. the 2500, the first scanner I worked on as an engineer, squeaked out maybe a thousand points per second over a 40 by 40 window. And uh, we're a million points per second with the P40. And we're a million points a second over a wide field of view. And so that has huge productivity implications. And so, yes, uh, the, the ease of use of this equipment has, has dramatically improved. And, uh, and the productivity is so much higher than it was when we started. So I guess that's the one thing that I, I pick out. When I was listening back over uh, the recordings for that interview with Greg, I found it really interesting that there was a real insight into not just what goes into developing a product, but what goes into developing an otherwise specialist product, something like a laser scanner, where they're potentially sold in their thousands, not necessarily their millions, like a consumer product, like a mobile or cell phone, and also just what's at the heart of it. And in this case, I think it's it's understanding who the consumer is, what the consumer needs, and also as well, I guess, feeding into trends of the time, but also, you know, talking about this in 2016, there's definitely a generational change going on in that community at the moment. Laser scanning in, in itself is changing. The The units are becoming smaller, they're becoming cheaper, and also the software is becoming easier to use, and it's feeding into things like, say for instance, the maker movements, or anything where what's being called reality capture or reality-based design is totally changing the way in which things are not just being built, but also being monitored as well. So I think Greg's conversation really brought out a number of those themes, and as I said at the beginning, and I'll say it again at the end, it, it's very clear that Greg is just a very, very, you know, not just a very bright human being, but a very nice person as well. Anyway, it was a pleasure to uh, send out number 10 with Dr. Walsh, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing it. As I always say, why don't you show a little bit of uh, social media love, and why don't you follow Remotely Interested in, in, in all its various forms, whether it's Facebook, whether it's SoundCloud, whether it's Stitcher, whether it's Twitter, whether it's all of those kinds. Check down the side of the old SoundCloud profile and, you know, show it a bit of following, rate, subscribe and review love. Anyway, until next time, thanks a lot. Hello there, my name's Adam Spring and I'm here to talk to you about a number of ways in which you can stay connected with and contribute to the Remotely Interested podcast. As I've said before, it's listener supported and I love to include you guys as, as much as I can. Anyway... The big two are iTunes and SoundCloud, which you can subscribe to. Also for SoundCloud, you can follow, you can like, you can share. You can do a number of things with the content that I put up there. There's also Google Play where you can check this podcast out. And there's also a Facebook page that you can like. Now, in terms of connecting with me directly, there's a Twitter handle, which is at that interested. You can also follow and reach out to me there. And there's also the remotely interested email as well, which is contact at remotely-interested.com. Anyway, I love doing this for you. I hope you enjoy it and thanks for listening to the show.